Chapter Nine of Curly Carson Listens In by Roy J. Snell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Penn. Chapter Nine, A Mysterious Map. It was indeed a curious map which had been reproduced on the large photographic print which Gladys Ardmore placed on the desk before her father. Motioning Curly to come forward and examine it with them, the magnet rose from his chair to bend over the map. As Curly stood there looking down at it, the girl, in her eagerness, bent down so close to him that he felt her warm breath on his cheek. Nothing, however, could have drawn his gaze from that map. Wrinkled, torn in places, patched, browned with age, smirched by many finger marks, all of which were faithfully reproduced by the freshly printed photograph, it still gave promise of revealing many a mystery, if one could but read it correctly. It showed both land and water. Here on the land was a picture of a castle, and there on the water a ship. The shore of the land was not drawn as our maps, with which we are in these days familiar, but was cut up in curious geometric forms, which surely could not faithfully represent the true lines of the shore. Towns were shown, but only on the shoreline. Their names printed in by hand, in such small letters as would require a magnifying glass to read them. Crossing and recrossing the water in every conceivable direction were innumerable straight lines. About the edge of the map were eight faces of children, their cheeks puffed out as if blowing. They appeared to represent the wind that blew from certain quarters. All the writing was in some foreign language. In the lower left-hand corner was what appeared to be the name of the maker, but this was so blotted out as to be unreadable. Huh, the magnet straightened up. That's a strange map, and appears to be very ancient, but I can hardly see how it's going to help us with our present problem. There is still the writing, suggested Gladys, turning over the other photograph. That, said Mr. Ardmore, after a moment's study of it, is written in some strange tongue, and is, I take it, unintelligible to us all. It's a photograph of the back of the map, suggested Curly, pointing out certain spots where the wrinkles and tears were the same. My French teacher will be here at ten o'clock. He knows several languages. Perhaps he could help us, suggested Gladys. We will leave that to him, said her father. Now about these messages, he went on, turning to Curly. What is your theory? Stammeringly, Curly proceeded to explain the idea which had come to him, the notion that Vincent Ardmore and some pal of his had been planning a secret trip of some sort. That is entirely possible, said Ardmore. Vincent is daring, even rash at times. If some wild fancy leaped into his head, he would attempt anything. Now that you speak of it, I do think there might be something in your theory. Perhaps, after all, we may get some light from that map and the writing on the back of it. I shall await the coming of the professor with much anxiety. Father, exclaimed Gladys, I have seen some such maps as this one at some other place. Where? It was over at that big library, the one you are a director of. The Newtonian? Yes. I was over there once, and they showed me a great number of ancient maps. Oh, a very great number, and such strange affairs as they were. There were some similar to this one. I know there were. 
"'Young man,' said the magnate, turning to Curly, "'may I command your services on this matter for the day?' Curly bowed. "'Good. You will not be unrewarded. I am of the opinion that something may be learned by a study of the maps my daughter speaks of. Unfortunately, I am engaged. I cannot go to the library.' Would it be asking too much if I were to request that you accompany her? Curly assured him it would not. In his heart of hearts, he assured himself that it would be a great privilege. Very well, then. Gladys, the magnet bowed to his daughter. I suggest that you plan on being back here at eleven. By that time, your French teacher may have something to tell us. Bowing to them both, he dismissed them with a wave of his hand. As the neat little town car, which was apparently Gladys Ardmore's exclusive property, hurried them away toward the north side library, Curly had time to think and to steal a look now and then at his fair hostess. Matters had been going rather rapidly of late. He found it difficult to keep up with the march of events. What should be his next move? He was torn between two conflicting interests, his loyalty to the Radio Secret Service Bureau and his desire to be of service to this girl and her father. The girl, as he stole a glance at her, appeared disturbed and troubled. There was a tenseness about the lines of her mouth, a droop to her eyelids. For all the world, as if she were in some way to blame for what has happened, he told himself. Instantly the question popped into his mind. Does she know more than she cares to tell? He thought of the wireless equipment which had been removed from the wrecked car before the reporters had arrived. The laborer would hardly do that without orders from someone. Who had that someone been? The millionaire had denied all knowledge of the radio messages. Curly believed that he had told the truth. Here was an added mystery. He was revolving this in his mind when the girl spoke. It must be very interesting listening in. Listening in? Curly feigned ignorance of her meaning. Yes, isn't that what you do? Listen in on radio all the time? Curly started. How did she know? Why, yes, since you've asked, that is my work. Where, where, she hesitated, is your station? That, smiled Curly, is a state secret. Very few know where it is. Oh, she breathed. A mystery. Curly nodded. Something like that. I love mysteries, she whispered. I love to unravel them. Some day I shall surprise you. I shall come walking into that secret room of yours. There was a look on her face that he had not seen there before. It was disturbing. It spoke of a quality which, he concluded, she had inherited from her father the quality of firmness and determination, which had made him great. I'd, I'd rather you wouldn't try, he almost stammered. Oh, here we are, she exclaimed, at the library. Leaping out of the car, she led the way up the broad steps of an imposing gray stone structure. Down this way, she whispered, as if awed by the vast fund of knowledge stowed away between those walls. Without further words, they made their way within. Ten minutes later, they were together bending over a great pile of ancient maps. Done on sheepskin and vellum, gray and brown with age, 
yet with colors as bright as on the day they were drawn. These maps spoke of an age that was gone and of a map-making art that is lost forever. Look at this one, exclaimed the girl. The date's on it. 1450. Made before the days of Columbus. And look, it is like the one Vincent had the photograph of. The most like of any. Yes, but not the same, said Curly. See, those strangely shaped islands in the lower right-hand corner are not on it. Neither are the cherubs blowing to imitate the wind. That's true, said the girl in a disappointed tone. I had hoped it might be the same map. It might have told us something. Suddenly Curly was struck with an idea. Leaving the girl's side, he approached the librarian. Have any of these maps been photographed recently? he asked in a low tone. Not for several years, she answered. But there are reproductions of these and others. They are in a bound volume in the next room. There the maps are reproduced on a large scale, and a description of each is given. The lady in charge will show you. Curly tiptoed into that room. He was soon turning the pages of a large book which resembled an atlas. After studying each successive page for some time, he came to a halt with a suppressed exclamation. There, staring up at him, was a reproduction of the very map which had been photographed for Vincent Ardmore. And, if further proof were lacking, there on the opposite page was a reproduction of the writing on the back of it, with a translation in fine print below. Hurriedly, he read the translation through. Twice he paused in utter astonishment. Three times he wrote down a brief note on a scrap of paper. When he had finished, he looked at the lower left-hand corner of the map, then copied some figures reproduced there. Closing the book quickly, as if afraid the girl would find him looking at it, he paused for a moment to banish all sign of excitement from his face, then walked leisurely from the room. Find anything? he asked in as quiet a tone as he could command. No. There was a tired and worried look in her eyes. I'm afraid the map is not here. By the way, he said in a casual way, does your brother happen to have a pal living at Landonsport on the coast? Why, yes, she said quickly. That's Alfred Brightwood. They were chums at Brimward Academy. I thought that might be so. And you think think she faltered what we think he smiled a disarming smile doesn't count for much it's facts which really matter excuse me i'll be back in a moment he said hurriedly want to telephone in the booth of the library he conversed long and earnestly with his chief why yes came over the phone at last i don't see but that you had better finish the thing up we can't let rich young offenders off easily. It would destroy the service entirely. Go ahead. Cole's masters can handle the station while you're away. The interview ended. He got Joe Marion on the wire. Joe, he said hurriedly, throw some of my things into a bag and some of your own with them. Be down at Lakeshore Station at 1.15, prepared for a short trip. Where to? Oh, New York and then some. It's important and interesting. Be there. Good. Goodbye till then. He snapped down the receiver and hurriedly left the booth. 
Shall we go back? he asked the girl. I suppose we might as well, she said dejectedly. Then, brightening suddenly, Yes, let's hurry back. Perhaps the professor has found out something from that queer old writing. End of chapter 9